You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. Welcome to episode 330 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we have a grand conversation with theater director, writer, activist, professor, choreographer, man about town, Sean Edgecombe. And we talk with Mr. Edgecombe about watching the Tony Awards as a kid, Charles Ludlam, queer theater, the definition of queerness, productive ambivalence, intersectionality, about acknowledging privilege, living in the bubble of New York City, the ridiculous theater, a misunderstanding of camp, John Waters' performance ethnography, the power of contradiction, hypercapitalism, and a few other things. A great conversation with Sean Edgecombe on today's program. We have an EW essay titled Queer and a reading by Stephen Fry of John Keats' piece titled Ode to a Nightingale, and a poem called Among. And of course, as is always the case, all of this will be imbued, infused with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It is so good to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 330 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours.
Yesterday I was looking at the clouds in my front yard until they turned into stars, lighted up by the moon via the illumination of the sun. And I realized how the little I have studied and the even less I thoroughly understood of physics has made me a better poet. The crickets and lightning bugs harmonize with sound and bright beat in time, friction and bursts of energy gliding through the natural amphitheater on this hilltop, surrounded by old Appalachian mountains. I stand there with smoking tobacco and a bottle of brewed hops and barley, wandering this infinity within the borders open of my homestead. The street signs, the grass lines, and roadways with curbs that guide the rainwater back into the waterways. I wonder how I am here. I think about how queer and beautiful this often all is. I feel, too, the pain our humanity so often works through to, despite it, sustain a good life, and how with our minds, spirits, souls, the power of real love and compassion, it is intrinsically our propensity to extol. And I look now from the stars in the stratosphere to their direct connection in my human person and sigh with relief and joy and trembling courage. I am indeed here, just as queer as you. Standing on your seat 
strawberry fields forever Is this Sean Edgecombe? It sure is. Hello, this is E.W. Conundrum from Troubadours and Rock on Tours. Thanks for being on the program. Hi, E.W., how are you? Oh, good, thanks. Uh, before we get started, let me give the folks a little background information. Great. Okay, so um, Sean Edgecombe is a theater director, a choreographer, a professor. And uh, as a professor, he is a hybrid scholar slash artist at City University of New York at the College of Staten Island. He teaches broadly across theater and performance studies, as well as queer intersectionality studies. He regularly directs faculty productions and teaches acting and devising. His research focuses on LGBTQ plus theater and performance history in a global context, queer theory and performance ethnography. 
He is a consortial faculty member of the Ph.D. program in theater at the Graduate Center. Sean is committed to promoting inclusion, diversity, empathy, and representation in the classroom and through scholarly discourse and its dissemination. Troubadours and Rock on Tours is happy to have on the program Sean Edgecombe. Again, thank you so much for taking out the time. Thanks for having me. Uh, let's get right in uh, to it. How about you share with us how you got into theater to begin with? Sure. So I think it's probably kind of a typical American story. Um, I grew up on a potato farm in Maine, very, very far from the professional theater. Uh, but like a lot of kids, I was involved in school theater and community theater. Uh, but when I think about what had kind of the most influence on me on why I decided to take this path, uh, which is kind of a, <laughs> probably a strange, uh, story, but I think not atypical. It w was watching the Tony Awards as a kid. You know, I grew up in the eighties and nineties and, uh, long before the internet and YouTube clips of plays in New York. So once a year, I can remember settling down with my family and, and watching that um, and just being kind of overwhelmed by, by the power of performance. And even though it wasn't live performance, which I think is even more dynamic, uh, it definitely got hooked. Uh, so I continued to pursue that path. Um, I started out as an acting major at Emerson College in Boston. Uh, and, and trained there uh, and realized I liked directing considerably better. Uh, and then uh, I eventually landed on uh, getting a PhD at Tufts University. And the reason why I attended Tufts was to work with Lawrence Senelik, uh, who was just recently retired. Uh, but he was one of the, the scholars who really foregrounded gay and lesbian theater in America um, and really globally as well. Uh, and that was what uh, influenced me to write about Charles Ludlum and to write about queer theater in, in America. Uh, and also understanding better, I think, the, the importance of, of live performance and queerness as it connects to activism in the United States. I love it. That was great. It brought us to the present moment. And, you know, for those who aren't as, I guess... Um, used to using or hearing the term queer. How do you define the term queer? I'd like to start there. Yeah, that's a great question because I know it can be jargony and it can be confusing. Uh, so before I give my little definition, what I would say is one of the most important things about queerness is it really can't be defined. And that's why it's empowering. It's fluid. It can mean a lot of different things. Um, and in meaning those different things, what it's trying to do politically, I think, or, or artistically, uh, is to step outside the box and say to people, you don't have to conform. You don't have to choose one or the other. So the history of queerness, of course, it was a pejorative for a long time for for gay people, gay and lesbian people. Uh, but it was really in the early 1990s uh, that coming out of feminism, uh, it started to be um, repurposed, reclaimed uh, as, as a positive term. Uh, and so with that, originally it was kind of working around notions of um, uh, politics and identity around gay and lesbian people. Uh, but as it kind of has moved over the past, the, the course of the past 20 years or so, 30 years even, uh, what's happened is it's become more inclusive. So what I would say the way I define queerness is as a kind of productive ambivalence 
and what I mean by that is, yes, it could be about different people who feel marginalized or who have experienced oppression or trauma because of societal norms. Uh, but with with the notion of queerness as a kind of embodied act or or an, a part of an identity, what it means is you you don't have to choose, right? You can you can do some things that are more traditional, like of course we have gay marriage in this country now, or other people may choose to live their lives differently. Uh, and it's thinking critically about those different choices uh, and what it means in in the context of being an American in 2019. Yeah. Oh, well, well, well put. You know, for me, early on, when I was a youngster, the the word queer, and I didn't never looked at this as a negative because I, uh, I mean, it meant odd, and I always thought being odd was kind of cool. You know, it's kind of <laughs> you're you're not you're not just kind of following the the norms. You're doing your own thing. So if something or someone was called queer, I guess it was, as you said, a pejorative where. Uh, it's a negative because you're not falling in line. But in a way, you embrace that, as you said, has been the case as of late. And you're, yes, I am different, and that's cool. That's okay. Exactly right. And the etymology of the world, word queer goes really back to the Renaissance, and it kind of means off-kilter, like you said, not stepping in line. Um, and so the repossession of it is moving away from exclusively sexuality and, and thinking of it more in that way, like you said. Oh, cool. Great. Great. Thank you for uh, expounding on that. Now, uh, you in the classroom often are, are uh, sharing with your students the idea of intersectionality. Yes. What can you explain that a bit? Sure. So intersectionality uh, actually uh, in, in academic circles comes about around the same time that queer theory develops. So around 1989, 1990. Uh, and it was introduced by a scholar named Kimberly Crenshaw, who was working specifically with African-American culture and critical race theory. Uh, but what intersectionality really means in, in simpler terms, as I would tell my students, uh, is to think about all of the different components that, that make up who you are as a person. So I, I'm a gay man, I'm an American, I'm a, a white man. Um, but within that, all of those kind of different components, I have to recognize my privilege. So I am a white man in America, which gives me a certain kind of privilege, right? So the point is that intersectionality is, is acknowledging that privilege, thinking how all of these different kind of parts of who you are and your experience come together to change your perspective. And then I think third, most importantly, is, is making sure that people who perhaps have different privileges or less privilege are given an opportunity to have a voice and, and visibility, uh, not only in academia and scholarship, but really applying it to the real world. Excellent. In an ideal uh, society, that would be what we are all, the majority of us, uh, are trying to uh, accomplish, trying to pursue. Though uh, maybe I'm more cynical than you. Uh, I try to be skeptical, not cynical, but sometimes I find myself teetering into cynicism. <laughs> it's hard these days. I hear you. <laughs> yeah, it is hard. Uh, do do you think it is possible to get the majority of our fellow citizens in this country to think that uh, fair-mindedly, that openly, that courageously? I would even say. I think it's a grand project, of course. Uh, but I think the first step is interpersonal communication, because when it becomes less about uh, critical discourse or a kind of academic approach and more about personal stories and experiences being shared, I do think there's hope. 
And so that really falls on all of us, uh, wherever we are in America. And, you know, I live in the bubble of New York City. I'm very privileged in that way as well. Uh, but I grew up in Maine on a farm, and I, and I know what that world is like. Uh, and I think that sometimes, and it may sound, you know, a little too hopeful, when we can really kind of push away all of the noise and the rhetoric and start to experience each other, uh, there, there can be change in social progress. You, you know, um, I I wanted to give you an opportunity maybe to address your own experience, if you like, uh, regarding um, sharing with those close to you and then just society in general, uh, the fact that you are a gay man when you came out. Was that difficult? Yeah, of course. I mean, I, I'm 40, and so I, I grew up in the 80s and 90s. Um, and when I was a kid, um, fortunately, my family, you know, they were they were quite progressive and open. But it was during the, the period of HIV and AIDS, and it was terrifying. And there was an immediate association with that within the context of what it meant to be gay. Right. And I remember hearing a lot of, well, we just want you to be happy or we're afraid for you. Um, but I would like to think, at least in my, my own experience, my own family and friends, they're they're examples of people who are willing to change. Uh, and that change happened, as I said, through conversation and a better understanding of um, an individual. So we have to have uh, a queer kinship and, and, and gay community. It's incredibly important, uh, especially for people who were not as fortunate as, as I was. Uh, but at the same time, my identity is my identity. You know what I mean? So I hope it informs that kind of collectivity. Um, but I'm not going to pretend, I think, for a lot of people in America, it's not easy to be gay today. Still, it continues. There's a lot of homophobia. There's a lot of intolerance, really grounded in you know fundamentalist Christianity, which is unfortunate. Uh, and so I would say I'm, I'm actually really interested in, in writing about the queer rural right now, talking about my own experience. Uh, and those are the people that really need us to reach out uh, because Gay life, there's a stereotype that it's an urban life, right? Jack Halberstam calls it metronormativity. Um, but there are a heck of a lot of queer people in this country uh, who are not in the cities um, and have vibrant lives and communities, and I think they deserve recognition. Yes. Yes. I agree. And, you know, you mentioned how it's still, you know, people might think, well, you know, just like with black uh, culture and, and the black uh, narrative in the United States, oh, we had a black president, so there's no more racism, there's no more problems for black folks. You know, well, we have gay marriage now in the United States, so it's easy for, for gay folks, LGBTQ uh, folks. Not the case. Not at all. And I mean, I can speak personally. Uh, with the election of our current president, and even more so vice president and his record, oh, it was very terrible. it was very terrifying, you know, to go through that. And it continues to be. Now, let's uh, thank you for sharing that. Let's um, let's go to uh, someone who you, I think, find fascinating. And I would assume based on how much work you've done uh, uh, researching this gentleman, you uh, you look up to in a certain way, you respect Charles Ludlam. Sure. So Charles Ludlam, uh, I would say, and I'm biased, <laughs> but uh, probably the most overlooked playwright in uh, 20th century American theater. So important. Uh, sadly, he passed away um, from HIV AIDS related complications in 1987. Uh, but the reason why he's so incredibly important is he really forged the path for a distinctly queer theater in America. 
So he was coming out of kind of youth culture in the 1960s when the downtown scene uh, was really developing in Greenwich Village and gay liberation was just about to hit. And actually, as a kind of aside, his theater eventually would be located in Sheridan Square, sort of kitty corner to the Stonewall Bar where liberation started. So the reason why he's so important, uh, in my opinion, other than the fact his plays are really clever and funny, uh, is he forwarded... Uh, he didn't invent it, but he forwarded this style of theater called the Ridiculous Theater. And the Ridiculous, what it essentially does, uh, it's distinctly American. It ridicules normative society. So it, it, it doesn't feature necessarily gay or lesbian characters, though it could. But what it does is it throws society back on itself. So it creates a kind of funhouse mirror. So the audience begins to see themselves in these narratives. But the narratives typically are very freewheeling, they're drawn from literature, but also pop culture, and they pastiche everything together to really make a political statement. So I often like to say to people, when you think about Charles Ludlam's theater in New York City uh, in the late 60s through the 80s, what he was doing is he was, it wasn't grassroots, right? He wasn't uh, uh, drilling activism into his audiences necessarily. But what he was doing is he was inviting people, you might say, into his closet where they could dress up and, and queer themselves and play. And, and with that moment or feeling of kinship and freedom that he was promoting, hopefully then people would go to the streets and they would reflect this kind of new ideal for America. And, you know, do you, again, do you think today he passed away uh, probably when in the 80s, late 80s? Seven, yep. Uh, do you think today he'd be pretty surprised with how far we've gotten for the better or for the worst in, in uh, you know, those areas he was trying to, 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 to uh, open people's minds to? I hope so. Uh, I will say something that I love about Charles Ludlam uh, is he was quite a difficult person. So it's hard for me to uh, declare whether or not he would feel envious or, or threatened by more contemporary performers. Uh, but one of the great things about the Ridiculous Theater and specifically his approach to it uh, is it has been uh, a, a, a root system for a lot of new performance to, performers to come about. So in my first book, which is, is dedicated to him, called Charles Ludlam Lives, I trace different queer legacies of his work. So probably some listeners have heard of Taylor Mack, mm -hmm. uh, who, who's this incredibly important queer performer of the moment, uh, who won a Genius Grant, um, who was a Tony Award nominee this year. Uh, and his work, among other, other queer performers like Jack Smith, uh, or Ethel Eichelberger can be traced to what Ludlam was doing. But the wonderful thing about the ridiculous theater, which is reflected both in Ludlam's work and Taylor Mack's work, is it's always a reflection of the, the current system, the current hegemony of the culture. So it's, it's relevant. You know, in, in some ways, it reminds me of another theater that came out in the late 60s, early 70s in New York City, uh, the Bread and Puppet Theater, Peter Schumann. Uh, and it wasn't geared toward uh, just the, the way society looks at the, uh, the gay community. Uh, and I guess that was more of the context from which Ludlam and uh, Mac were com are coming from. But it was about putting a mirror in front of uh, society and letting them see the systems that control them and how oppressive and ridiculous they are. 
uh, I don't know if you ever heard of bread, bread and puppet. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And of course, Ludlam would have experienced some of those grand puppet parades in the park. I like, wondered. I was wondering if maybe they crossed paths at all. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and a lot of those different, the Performance Garage and Richard Schechner, you know, they all would have been working kind of simultaneously in the same space um, and would have attended each other's productions. And and although they had individual ideals, there was certainly a larger goal for social progress in mind. Um, but I think Taylor Mack, it's important to say, although he is coming from that same kind of queer identity, his latest project, uh, A 24 Decade History of Popular Music, is really, tr what, what he does is he sings uh, popular music from 1776 to 2016. And he actually did a 24 hour concert at St. Anne's a few years ago in Brooklyn. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, it's amazing. But he continues to tour now. And his his point uh, kind of, I guess, goes back to something I said earlier, where it's not just about queer people, but anyone in American history whose story hasn't been told. Exactly. I mean, it's it really, we're talking about civil rights. We're talking about human dignity. We're talking about kindness. We're talking about things that everybody should want for one for themselves and for one another. Exactly. Amen. You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. Talking to Sean Edgecombe here on Troubadours and Tours, an excellent conversation. So nice to have you on the program with us. And um, we have a couple more areas to go. We have probably about 10 minutes or so. Let's Great. see. Uh, we kind of, I guess, address this to a certain extent, but... Uh, Maybe we could go there even more so. I, I crafted this question that I think I sent to you. What is the relationship between the world of academics, the theater world, and mainstream LBG, LGBTQ plus political advocacy? That's a great question because I would like to think that I represent someone who is committed uh, to all three parts, right? Uh, because I'm also an artist and a performer, uh, but I, I can approach it critically as an academic. Uh, and then I try to be engaged with activism as well. Uh, it's more problematic than that, to be perfectly honest. Uh, there are a lot of uh, performers who are distrustful of critical discourse. So I'll, I'll give you a little example, which I think works. Um, I think that the, the Met Ball this year and the Fashion Gala, which is dedicated to camp, um, I think was hugely unsuccessful. And that's a good example of where the kind of real world, right, uh, or fashion world, was trying to engage in a kind of activism, particularly around the anniversary of the Stonewall riots this year. Um, but what happened, unfortunately, uh, and it was very performative, you could argue it was theatrical, is I think there was a complete misunderstanding of camp. Uh, and in a way, what it tried to do was, was make camp into this kind of singular historical moment, which it isn't. Um, and then it became a performance of these celebrities who didn't understand what they were doing, which in a way completely works against the notion of queerness, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't want to be negative and say I think the attempt was wrong, but, you know, why wasn't John Waters on that carpet? Where was Taylor Mack? Where were Dolly Parton? Where were these people who engage in a kind of queer camp sensibility? Um, why weren't they spoken to? Why weren't they part of the process? And I think that goes back to the kind of problem of visibility, right? Or representation. In America, I think something we have to go back to all the time, which Taylor Mack also talks about, is 
we all have certain kinds of authority which come from our identity and our intersectionality, you might say positionality, and that informs what we can talk about, what we should talk about. So when it comes to camp, there should, should have been some queer people talking about it. Does that make sense? Makes total sense. Yeah, makes total sense. In a way, it sounds like it was just embraced as a almost like a cliche uh, rather than, yeah, a, you know, aesthetic, a, even. Yeah. what was that? Even an aesthetic rather yes. than. Yeah, like a, a lived moment or, or, a, or a perspective. Yes, exactly. And I, I think you, you need to point those, those things out. Although some folks get upset and they say, oh, you're being nitpicky now and you're looking for trouble. You know, for, my son is, a, is an actor. He's a musical theater guy. And, uh, you know, he's, a, as I, am I, a, a, a white heterosexual male, you know, and yep. if one time he was he was in a in a production and there was a character who was uh, written as a person of color and uh, the the person who had it got sick uh, so they asked my son if he would be willing to take that song and and do it and my son said no that should be a person of color that does that song not me and, and yeah and I said well why'd you do that son and he said because it's just the right thing to do and secondly I would have been crucified. And he accepts that. He accepts that he should be because yeah. that, that's the, that role is for not for him. Exactly. It's it's that question of authority again. But also, there are already so few opportunities for marginalized people in in certain contexts. Why would you ever take one away? Right. 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 So I, I thought that was neat. And I think that's what you're talking about to a certain yeah, extent. You should have John Waters there. You're right. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, let's. How about helping us understand me too, for sure? What is performance ethnography? I'm probably even pronouncing it wrong. <laughs> yeah, ethnography. Sure, ethnography. There you go. <laughs> so ethnography typically uh, is is related to uh, anthropology and sociology. Of course, the notion of kind of the thick description of going into a certain space uh, and interviewing people with an attempt not to be biased, but. Uh, Performance ethnography, is, it's newer and a little more specific. Uh, it's definitely the process I trained in and used for my first book, which required a lot of interviews of, of living people. Uh, but it's essentially an arts-based based method um, of qualitative inquiry of subjects. Uh, but what it also does, it considers the theater not only a space of entertainment and engagement, but also a critical space that can be read uh, in, in a very specific kind of academic way. So the other challenging thing I think about performance ethnography is learning to understand uh, the connection between the performance itself and then the participants in the performance, whether they be actors or directors, trying to trace those connections or, frankly, the contradictions between them. So something I learned a great deal about uh, when I was writing my book is the power of contradiction. When you're interviewing a lot of different people within the theater and getting uh, contradicting stories, you know, which are driven by emotion, I think it was the person's truth at the time, and then not necessarily choosing a narrative, but learning what's powerful about the contrasting stories uh, and what they tell us about humanity. And I, I think that theater or performance at the end of the day is really about humans. It's about humanness. It's about how we get through, you know, this strange life we're all living, uh, and then the engagement within that ephemeral space, that liveness that only happens in the theater. Wow. 
you're so well spoken. I'd love to have you as a professor. My gosh, it must be great sitting in a room with you. <laughs> I appreciate it. Oh no, it's 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 uh, it's it's very uh, en enlightening too. A lot of this, um, these areas of discourse are not what most folks delve into. And again, as we mentioned earlier, for us to be a stronger society, to have critical thinking be at the forefront of our approach and, and to have a very diverse context from which we think and reflect is, is what will make us a superior sort of culture. And we call ourselves the greatest country in the world all the time. We throw that around all the time. And we have the opportunity to be the greatest country in many ways, and we, we don't take that opportunity. And, and by embracing our diversity, having these kinds of conversations, this kind of analysis, so invigorating, so inspiring, and again, so effective it would be for us to engage in that manner so that we could, you know, thrive. I hope so. And I also hope something I'm really committed to with my own students, and I hope in my work, uh, is you know, if you're going to use jargon, break it down. There's no reason these concepts can't be broken down so they can be understood by everyone. Right. And it goes back to some of everything goes back to foundation principles. You know, right. what are we trying to achieve as individuals? What do we what kind of communities are, are important to us? How do we want to live? You know, if, if there are people out there like I, I don't know, you, you if you look at someone like uh, a Mitch McConnell and say, how can that person look at himself in a mirror? Now, if people, if people want to be that way, okay, they choose to be. But I don't think most people want to be that way. And I don't know how he became that way. Maybe he has some real issues that if I knew about them, I'd have more compassion for him. Uh, but my point is, most people want to be good people, I think. But they oftentimes aren't given the right opportunity or guidance or they're overwhelmed by so much fear and such that they, they, don't, they don't open up to it. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think also in America, this is getting very political, but that's okay. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's easy uh, in, in this kind of world of hyper capitalism, uh, which frankly is as much an oligarchy now as a democracy uh, to kind of become frustrated. And, and when somebody is stressed about, you know, paying their bills, like many of my students, it's very hard to engage politically. So I think theater is one of those spaces where you can um, connect to people intellectually, but also emotionally. And sometimes that's exactly what people need beyond the propaganda, beyond the rhetoric, right? Because uh, it's about power at the end of the day. It surely is. It surely is. And uh, your, your uh, future projects now, I mean, I'm very interested in, in knowing what, what are you, are you working on anything in particular for the stage and or uh, to be printed, to be published? I am. So uh, I have just adapted uh, a new one-act version of a short story by Nathaniel Hawthorne called Young Goodman Brown. Uh, and that will be uh, produced and on stage the first week of November at the College of Staten Island in the Lab Theater, if people are interested. Um, I'm co-editing a volume uh, with David Roman, who's a professor of English at USC, specifically on all of Taylor Mac's work. Uh, and we have invited some really excellent contributors to talk about different stages of his work. Um, and then I also have a book, uh, as my second monograph, which is under contract with Michigan, which is called A Queer Bestiary. And what it's doing is it's looking at contemporary 
uh, queer global performers, uh, but then tracing the way that animals or anthropomorphism have been used in these different queer contexts, which are sometimes contradictory, in different cultures throughout the world. Oh, fascinating. Oh. Fascinating stuff. Uh, so if folks want to maybe get in contact or at least if not direct contact to see uh, where this stuff is happening the timelines and such how, how could they do that sure so they can uh, look at my profile uh, at the Graduate Center website for CUNY uh, and I, my email should be listed on that page uh, and I'm always happy to have people reach out and uh, talk about theater or politics or queerness and their intersections excellent Sean Edgecombe, E-D-G-E-C-O-M-B is the last name, Sean, S-E-A-N. And uh, closing thoughts, Sean, you, could, you're, you have an opportunity now to speak to the throngs. What do you want to say to them? Uh, go to the theater. Doesn't matter if it's Broadway or downtown. Doesn't matter if you are in rural Illinois or uh, traveling into Europe. Support the theater, support performers. Uh, but when you go to the theater, enjoy it, yes. But then talk about it critically and share your your ideas because that's such a productive, exciting space. Thank you so much, Sean. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I look forward to talking with you again. That sounds great. Take care. Bye-bye. Part three. Summer Buddy Holly, the working folly, the golly Miss Molly, and boats. Hammersmith Pally, the Bolshoi Bally, jump back in the alley, add nanny goats. 80 minus camels, Dominica camels, all other mammals plus equal boats. Seeing Piccadilly, Fanny Smith and Willie, being rather silly, and porridge oats. A bit of grin and bear it, a bit of come and share it. You're welcome, we can spare it. Yellow socks, too short to be haughty, too nutty to be naughty. Going on 40, no electric shots. The juice of the carrot, the smile of the parrot, a little drop of claret, anything that works. Elvis and Scotty, days when I ain't spotty, sitting on the potty, curing smallpox. Reasons to be cheerful. Reasons to be cheerful. Part three. Reasons to be cheerful. Part three. Reasons to be cheerful. One, two, three. Reasons to be cheerful. Part three. Health service classes, gigolos and brasses, round or skinny bottoms. Take him on to Paris, lighting up the chalice. Wee Willie Harris. Bantu Stephen Beagle, listening to Rico. Harper Groucho Chico. Cheddar cheese and pickle, the Vincent Motorcycle. Slap and tickle. Woody Allen Darley, Dimitri and Pasquale. Bala 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 and below. Sunday nights to study, phoning up a buddy. Being in my nutty. Saying okie dokie, sing along a smoky. Coming out a chokey. John Coltrane Soprano, Eddie Celentano, Bona Carino. Reasons to be cheerful. Reasons to be cheerful. Reasons to be cheerful. Reasons to be cheerful. One, two, three.
Yes, yes, dear, dear, perhaps next year, or maybe even never. In which... drowsy numbness pains my sense, as though of hemlock I had drunk, or emptied some dull opiate to the drains. One minute passed, and leafy woods had sunk. Tis not through envy of thy happy lot, but being too happy in thine happiness, that thou, light-winged dryad of the trees, in some melodious plot of beechen green and shadows numberless, Singest of summer in full-throated ease. Oh, for a draught of vintage that hath been cooled a long age in the deep-delved earth, tasting of flora and the country green, dance and Provencal song and sunburnt mirth. Oh, for a beaker full of the warm south, full of the true, the blushful hippocrene, with beaded bubbles winking at the brim and purple-stained mouth, that I might drink and leave the world unseen, and with thee fade away into the forest dim, fade far away, dissolve, and quite forget what thou among the leaves hast never known, the weariness, the fever, and the fret here, where men sit and hear each other groan, where palsy shakes a few sad last grey hairs, where youth grows pale and spectre thin and dies, where but to think is to be full of sorrow, and leaden-eyed despairs, where beauty cannot keep her lustrous eyes, or new love pine at them beyond tomorrow. Away, away, for I will fly to thee, not charioted by Bacchus and his pards, but on the viewless wings of poesy. Though the dull brain perplexes and retards already with thee, tender is the night, and haply the queen moon is on her throne, clustered around by all her starry fays. But here there is no light, 
save what from heaven is with breezes blown through verdurous glooms and winding mossy ways. I cannot see what flowers are at my feet, nor what soft incense hangs upon the boughs, but in embalmed darkness guess each sweet wherewith the seasonable month endows the grass, the thicket, and the fruit tree wild. White hawthorn and the pastoral eglantine, fast-fading violets covered up in leaves, and mid-May's eldest child, the coming musk-rose, full of dewy wine, the murmurous haunt of flies on summer eaves. Darkling, I listen, and for many a time I have been half in love with easeful death, called him soft names in many a mused rhyme, to take into the air my quiet breath. Now more than ever seems it rich to die, to cease upon the midnight with no pain, while thou art pouring forth thy soul abroad in such an ecstasy. Still wouldst thou sing, and I have ears in vain, to thy high requiem become a sod. Thou wast not born for death, immortal bird. No hungry generations tread thee down. The voice I hear this passing night was heard in ancient days by emperor and clown. Perhaps the selfsame song that found a path through the sad heart of Ruth, when sick for home she stood in tears amid the alien corn. The same that oft times hath charmed magic casements opening on the foam of perilous seas in fairy lands forlorn. Forlorn, the very word is like a bell to toll me back from thee to my sole self. Adieu, the fancy cannot cheat so well as she is famed to do, deceiving elf. Adieu, adieu. Thy plaintive anthem fades, past the near meadows, over the still stream, up the hillside, and now tis buried deep in the next valley glades. Was it a vision or a waking dream? Fled is that music. Do I wake or sleep? There are those who would say that Berlin's perhaps most charming songs were written when he was quite young, such as the following example, which I will sing for you. Johnny was bashful and shy, nobody understood why. to know how she could pick such a bow with a twinkle in her eye she made this reply he's not so good in the crowd but when you get him alone you'd be surprised he isn't much at a dance but then when he takes you
Lucretia or Walid, Ramona or laissez-faire, hippie chic who likes smoking weed, or a pure Buddhist monk wearing peace with a passion sublime like a punk. Is these a contradiction? Trip flips off the tongue into that which you are a part of, yet should be independent from and two, steadfastly among. Hey, Mr. Tom, don't you think we suffer?
Episode 330 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, Sean Edgecombe. Also, I'd like to thank Stephen Fry and John Keats, our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavis and these musical artists. Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, Marion Hill, The Beatles, Ian Dury and the Blockheads, Madeline Kahn, Yo La Tango, Brantford Marsalis, and Terence Blanchard too. It's so nice to have you with us. Thanks for listening. Until next week, Let's give it a go and try to enjoy this one. Take care.